This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Susan Orlean, staff writer for The New Yorker and author. Titles of some of her work include The Orchid Thief, Rin Tin Tin, Animalish, Lazy Little Loafers, Throw Me a Bone, and most recently, The Library Book, which tells the story of a devastating fire in the L.A. library in 1986. The fire, which raged through the stacks, reached 2,000 degrees and destroyed 400,000 books and damaged another 700,000. The library book follows the story of the fire, weaving in the history of libraries and the L.A. library in particular, as well as Orlean's own love of books. The library book presents a mystery as to whether the fire was started deliberately and follows a possible suspect throughout the narrative. In the beginning of the library book, Orlean mentions that she had pledged never to write another book. So we began the interview with her reflecting on why she changed her mind. My decision at the time that I wasn't going to write another book really had more to do with the sense of the enormity of the commitment and the feeling that I I didn't think I could find another idea or I doubted that I would find another idea that I would feel as passionate about. I began thinking about libraries just kind of out of the blue. I tend to often find myself wondering about things that seem very familiar that I realize I know very little about and libraries fell into that category. I began thinking, well, it would be so interesting to write a book about the life of the sort of daily life of a big city library. And then I pushed it out of my mind and thought, no, I'm not going to do another book. When I uncovered some of the emotions that I had thinking about the library, in particular in relation to my mom and going to the library with her when I was a kid, it began to resonate really deeply, and it made me think, wow, there's a lot there, isn't there? It's not just a reporter's story. There's a really an emotional story in here as well. But I still didn't see what a narrative would be. And when I heard about the fire, it was such a powerful image, hundreds of thousands of books burning, and it, it felt so profound and and upsetting that I was just galvanized. It was Im- almost immediate where I thought, I'm going to do this book. And I guess I must have instantly pushed out of my head my declaration that I was not going to write any more books. It just felt like fate in many ways. Did you know about the fire in L.A.? And how did you decide to make that sort of the, the centerpiece of this? You know, when I first had this itch of curiosity, I didn't know about the fire. I, I knew, in fact, I think my first curiosity about libraries occurred before I had moved to L.A. And I had never visited the main branch of the library, and I, I really, truly had no clue whatsoever about the fire. It was only when I was being given a tour of the main branch and the person giving me the tour made an offhanded comment about the fire. And I said, what fire? What are you talking about? When he said, well, the big fire closed the library for seven years, I 
just, you know, I, I think of what my dog looks like when I ask her, if she wants to go for a walk. You know, I just perked my ears up and I said, what? Tell me more. The library at the time, the American Library Association had recommended that libraries not have sprinklers because the water would do so much damage to the books. And then they changed their stance almost right before that fire happened. And the library in L.A., the Central Library, had many fire violations. So that was kind of the backdrop a little bit politically of this fire. You're right. This was a peculiar and surprising fact that there were not sprinklers in the library. That was not by way of a violation as much as it was conforming with the suggestions of the ALA. The building also was very run down at that point. It had been built in 1926 and it hadn't been lavishly maintained. Um, It was too small. It was definitely crowded. Books were stacked in in every corner and in places that there shouldn't have been books stacked. So it was was very much uh, a fire waiting to happen. And when you think about what could be more flammable than books, it's, it's no surprise that libraries have the potential to be terrible fire hazards. The fire itself, the day of the fire, um, coincidentally, the fire department was consulting at the time with where to put sprinklers uh, because sprinklers were now being recommended. They were also installing fire doors for the first time, and that was a violation. I mean, the the idea that the library didn't have fire doors was kind of amazing. There was a, an alarm that went off that morning. There were already about 200 patrons in the building. Nobody panicked very much because there were regular false alarms in the library, and People almost grudgingly left the building rather than running out in a panic. The fire department came and did a walk around, and I think they did it kind of grudgingly as well, since they were very used to being called to the library for this rather faulty alarm system. And they didn't see anything, so they went to go reset the alarm. The problem was the alarm wouldn't reset. So there was the thought that the the alarm itself was faulty. But in order to be thorough, they walked through the building again just to make sure there was nothing that they had missed. And they noticed at that point a, a little bit of smoke coming out of the fiction department. They followed that smoke and within a few minutes, the smoke got denser and denser and suddenly unfurled as flame that very quickly started spreading. The fire burned for seven and a half hours. And as somebody once said to me, it was a a really perfect environment for a fire. There was so much fuel, namely the books. It reached up to 2,500 degrees as the fire burned. 
it was a, a really catastrophic fire in, in that it got so hot and had so much to feed on. One of the things that was so amazing is I think it was about 750,000 books that were destroyed either through fire or smoke or water. Yes, there were 400,000 that were completely destroyed and 700,000 that were badly damaged. And so the day after the fire, people just showed up. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people just showed up at the library. It's like almost like they were mourning. They were curious, but they also wanted to help. They, they said, what can we do? It was one of the most um, heartening and heartwarming facts of this story, which was that in the midst of this, a city that people very wrongly believe doesn't have a civic consciousness and an institution that we sometimes think no longer ha- is relevant or meaningful for people, this fire instantly galvanized the city, brought people together. And yeah, they had uh, several thousand people showed up unbidden. They just came down to the library and said, what can I do to help? You know, I'll carry books out. I'll, I'll wade through the ash to help sort the damaged books. And there's no way that they, this could have been accomplished without this enormous response from from the city and it was i think both a a testament to how much how much more civic feeling there is um in la in general but in la toward it's toward the library but also how much libraries mean to people whether they're going to them regularly or not i think there's an immense feeling of connection and regard and reverence for for libraries um and i think that was truly manifest in in this outpouring one thing about libraries is that they can be a great equalizer in our society that homeless people hang out in them which is um another sort of aspect to libraries in and of itself but wealthy people go there you know children go there they they provide a service that so many people can enjoy It's really interesting because the only thing I can compare them to is a public park. You've got the same sense of ownership uh, shared among a whole range of people in in a city or town. The fact that there's so many different kinds of people that can get value from a public park or a public library. As you said, it can be can be kids, it can be homeless people, it can be wealthy people, it can be scholars, it can be people trying to learn English. It's, it is an incredibly democratic, small d, democratic institution in the very best sense. And I think that, um, that brings its own, it's a multiplier. I think that people really value the fact that libraries are so genuinely democratic and it it adds to what makes them so special. Yeah, I mean it was tear jerking to read about the people that showed up and also the the librarians. I mean one thing you do in your book is you visit both um, librarians now librarians from the past 
as well as talk about the library system and how it developed. But one of the things that I got out of the different librarians that you talked to and that were featured in the book was how passionate they were about their job. And I'm wondering if you could characterize or, or maybe talk about the few, a few of the librarians you talked about or or if you went in thinking one thing and discovered something else about them as a, as a group of people, dedicated employees. The thing that I really came away realizing was that being a librarian is a calling as much as it is a profession. Nobody does it because they expect to be rich or famous or get away uh, doing an easy job for a lot of money. It, it You're drawn to it out of a, a sense of values and social service that's that's very distinct um you know it is not there's almost no other reason that you would become a librarian except that you believe in the in the value of these places and you know some people might even say it's it can be at times a thankless job that you work very hard and you don't make lots of money and you're never going to get a huge amount of acclaim for what you're doing. But the commitment is thorough. I was really moved by and impressed by all the librarians I met. I mean, it really, I, I know that sounds like a kind of broad statement, but they were all really different people. I mean, there were people for whom it was a second career. Um, there were a number of people who had been social workers who had become librarians. There were young people, um, one young guy in particular who had wanted to become a movie director and was just working at the library temporarily and then fell in love with library work and was in library school while he was working as a clerk there. The commitment was absolute, you know, um, from, from one end to the other. And I mean, I, I loved meeting the range of people. I'm just thinking of, uh, Mary McCoy who had been in a, an alt country band and then decided to become a teen librarian or Glenn Creason who became a librarian because at the time that he went to library school, there weren't very many men. And so he, claims that he went to library school because he figured he could meet a lot of women, which I find hilarious, uh, who is the head of the map department at the library and is really treats it as this almost uh, a stewardship of the maps that the library owns, and we're talking about, I believe the number is 200,000 maps and atlases, um, many of them very rare, that the LA library owns. Everybody's story, people come from so many different directions to become librarians, but once they become librarians, their their commitment seems really extraordinary. And frankly, their job satisfaction seems very high. They seem really proud of their work and and committed to it in a way that I think you don't always see in every profession. 
I mean, one of the things I loved about the library that you highlighted, you know, they are dealing with serious things. They're helping non-English speakers and immigrants integrate and learn the language. They're dealing with a lot of homeless issues, but they also have a, a sense of humor. They especially it seems comes through the reference desk where in L.A., since very early on, they had different kinds of phone references, um, different systems. One was called Scan. One was called Hoot Owl. And people could call and ask anything. I mean, people asked, what does Romeo look like? People people <laughs> would call and ask like the most random questions. And you think, well, who else would they call but a librarian? Right, right. I And that was one of my favorite parts of the research, by the way, was just this completely random set of questions that arose at, at a random moment in time that someone somewhere in L.A. was wondering at that particular moment whether e- grasshoppers or crickets were more evil. When you have a question that's um, seems urgent for whatever reason at that moment in time, that's who you call. So underneath all of this, you know, as you're exploring libraries, is is this fire that happened in 1986. And you begin the book with this man, Harry Peake, who's very eccentric. He grew up a little bit east of L.A. He had big, bushy, blonde hair. He wanted to be an actor, came from a big family. And he, he was a flamboyant guy who kind of was um, a storyteller and exaggerated stories. And he was in the library the morning of the fire, and he was the prime suspect. Harry was somebody who I think is, um, you might find in great supply in Los Angeles, which is a young man with stars in his eyes. Um, He grew up, in this case, close enough to L.A. that the the potentiality of it was always beckoning to him. And the minute he could, he left home and moved to LA with plans to become a movie star, not necessarily an actor, but but he, he imagined himself as a movie star. He nibbled around the edges of Hollywood, but in the most, the, the furthest from being a movie star you could possibly be and still claim you were working in Hollywood. He parked cars, he did errands, but still dreamed that he would be a star. He lived with roommates and just barely made a living. He had an unfortunate habit of being a tremendous fibber. He had an inability to to tell the truth. And this was noted by everybody who knew him. He just made all of the ordinary parts of his life into fables about having lunch with Cher or going out for drinks with Burt Reynolds. At the same time, he was, from all description, somebody who was really tremendously charming and likable and meant no harm, was very generous with his friends, even though he had nothing. He was a a guy who drove everyone crazy because he was just with this habit of fibbing and 
being late on rent and just never quite getting his life together. But he was beloved. His friends would speak of him affectionately, even at the same time as they would say, you know, and he drove me crazy. As far as I know, he had no ongoing relationship with the library. In fact, um, I spoke to a former boyfriend of his who said that as far as he knew, Harry had never gone to the library. He, he had no notion that he had any relationship with the library at all. So how did he fall into being a suspect? Well, he told people he had started the fire. His roommate's sister heard him boasting about how he had started the fire, and she turned him into a tip line. Because there was someone who fit his description who had been seen in the library that morning, he became suspect number one. The police began trailing him and then ended up interviewing him, and initially he told them he had done it. And then he recanted. Then he failed his lie detector test. He came up with seven different alibis over the course of the investigation, which um, I don't know that much about committing crime, but I think safe to say that having multiple alibis is not usually very persuasive. Um, And each alibi was a little bit more far-fetched than, than the next. He was eventually arrested and held, but when it came time to charge him, there was a concern on the part of the prosecutor that the evidence was largely circumstantial and that there simply wasn't anything that anybody could point to, like a fingerprint or finding lighter fluid in his apartment or anything of physical evidence that could connect him to the crime. So there was a a real worry about whether an indictment would actually hold up. Following the, the kind of twists and turns of the prosecution was really interesting and, and really, I think I was, I found it just as maddening as the, the uh, arson investigators did because you couldn't ever quite be sure you were really getting the truth. One of the things that you did to have maybe a a deeper understanding of, of what it might be like to be an arsonist was you decided to burn a book. And you said that you didn't want to burn a book that you really didn't like, like, say, some manifesto about Nazism or something. I mean, you didn't use that as an example, but that might be a book that some people might say, OK, that's OK to burn. And and you felt like right. you, you couldn't burn a book you didn't like, that that said something about yourself. So tell us about why you felt that and, and then your experience of, of the book that you burned. I wanted to burn a book for two different reasons. Um, one was I was writing extensively about this fire and I realized I had never seen a book burn. So I was partly interested in, in having the visual reference of what it would might look like to have a book burn. But the real reason was, was a much more significant one. And that was 
to try to explore why the idea of books burning is so uniquely disturbing. There's something about it that resonates in a in a very deep way and and that feels very taboo. So I, I was curious to explore that. And at first I, I thought, well, easy. I can just burn a book and I'll be able to describe it and see it and not a big deal, particularly knowing that I could go buy another book and replace it very quickly. But when it came to choosing the book, I was so uncomfortable that the entire thing took on a whole different dimension. I, I began to feel like I couldn't pick a book. Nothing seemed right, so to speak. All of the options seemed really wrong. I mean, burning a book I hated felt like I was giving in to the the historical tendency of regimes to burn books that they disapproved of. And it, it felt really uncomfortable. Then I thought, well, I'll burn a book I love so it won't seem like such an act of violence. And I can, I'll just go, I'll replace it as soon as I burn it. And then I thought, well, I, I don't want to burn a book I love. <laughs> I mean, that feels almost as bad as burning a book I hate. I then thought, well, I'll burn one of my own books. And then I thought, well, that somehow feels, first of all, very uncomfortable. And secondly, it seems to defeat the point of what I was trying to explore. And I was ready to give up. I just thought, I can't figure out what to do. I just, maybe I can't do this. Maybe it's actually true that burning a book is, is a, a sort of forbidden act that I'm just not going to be able to accomplish. At some point when I had said to my husband that I had had this idea and decided not to do it, he came home with a copy of Fahrenheit 451 and said to me, I think I found your book for you. And indeed, I think it was the perfect book. So perfect that I think even Ray Bradbury, who wrote it, would have approved if he had known what I was doing. Maybe especially because he wrote a lot of his work in the L.A. library. Especially so. And, you know, he was, in many ways, he was the spirit animal of the book. He was somebody who adored the library, who educated himself at the library, who wrote this, you know, epic, seminal work about the the horrors of book burning. And who got very involved after the library fire in helping raise money to um, buy books, to replace the books that were lost in the fire. So he was involved in the story on many different levels, which made it, um, made me feel really connected to him in the course of doing the book. And it made the idea of burning one of his books seem just so perfect. And libraries have been burned throughout history. I mean, you mentioned that in your book about different libraries being burned, whether it's, you know, political acts or, or some other thing. And I don't know if it was during the this book when you were writing it, but that museum in Brazil caught on fire and they lost a lot of yes. archives. And I was wondering if that, if it, where you were in this book process and how that impacted you. It was... Um really as i was writing the final portion of the book and it was a, a eerie sort of echo of 
both the fire in LA, but also just the burning of archives and libraries throughout time. And it was a terrible fire with a huge amount of loss. And you lose things in those public institutions that are truly irreplaceable. Um, this was an awful loss that, from what I understand, was preventable or that there are people who feel that it was there was a lot of neglect that led to the fire. But, you know, this is our patrimony. I mean, our libraries, our museums, the, that's where a culture's memory is stored and it's it's everybody's loss when there's a fire of that nature. It's an, it's an entire community losing. And in the case of the museum in Brazil, it really is the whole world that's losing because that was a resource that was internationally known and valued. And, and they had material in there that was, that existed nowhere else. One of the things you mentioned when you were talking about this, it was this saying from Senegal that when someone dies, mm. you say his or her library has burned. And that to me became the thematic underpinning for the entire book. It was both related to what I was writing about in terms of capturing my own memories and thinking about my mother and connecting to my memories of going to the library as a child. It was also um, a kind of connector between our own inner life and the way a library collects a, a community's inner life, knowledge and information and stories and narratives, and that they are preserved for an entire community in a library. But each individual is also, in a sense, a library. And we, we have in our minds those personal stories and information and knowledge and fantasies and narratives that we've collected, essentially, through our lives. And I was really, I was observing my mother losing her library as her memory began to disappear as I was working on the book. And it it made the the purpose of the book feel very urgent to me that i was i was trying to capture on the page something about my childhood and my memories of my mother that at least on her side were were becoming harder and harder to access and eventually impossible to access and then and libraries in that sense really are communal memory and we count on them in a way that you could never count on a person because they can live forever. And certainly that's something, sadly, we haven't yet figured out how to do as humans. Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Well, this is um, from Joan Didion slouching toward, towards Bethlehem. I would say that she has influenced me enormously and inspired me um, both in her writing, but also um, as a woman who's excelled in this profession. Um, she's been a real inspiration to me. The center was not holding. 
it was a country of bankruptcy notices and public auction announcements and commonplace reports of casual killings and misplaced children and abandoned homes and vandals who misspelled even the four-letter words they scrawled. It was a country in which families routinely disappeared, trailing bad checks and repossession papers. Adolescents drifted from city to torn city, sloughing off both the past and the future as snakes shed their skins, children who were never taught and would never now learn the games that had held the society together. People were missing. Children were missing. Parents were missing. Those left behind filed missing persons reports, then moved on themselves. This is the lead of a piece and the careful striptease act of the writing to me was incredibly um, meaningful and inspirational to me, especially when I was first starting as a writer, the confidence of opening a piece without telling you exactly what you're about to learn, but instead creating a mood and a rhythm of the writing that was so compelling that you would read on, even though you, you weren't necessarily sure what she was talking about. So as, as a model for how you might start a story, to me, that's always stood as a, a remarkable way to begin and to establish the control, the authorial voice as being really in control of what you're, about to read. Can you read something that you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Absolutely. And this, again, will be a lead. Um, and maybe that sort of tips my hand as um, somebody who thinks a lot about leads and also worries over them a great deal. And this is the lead to the library book. Even in Los Angeles, where there is no shortage of remarkable hairdos, Harry Peak attracted attention. He was very blonde, very, very blonde, his lawyer said to me, and then he fluttered his hand across his forehead, performing a pantomime of Peak's heavy swoop of bangs. Another lawyer who questioned Peak in a deposition remembered his hair very well. He had a lot of it, she said, and he was very definitely blonde. An arson investigator I met described Peek entering a courtroom with all that hair, as if his hair existed independently. Having a presence mattered a great deal to Harry Omer Peek. He was born in 1959 and grew up in Santa Fe Springs, a town in the Paddle Flat Valley less than an hour southeast of Los Angeles, hemmed in by the dun-colored Santa Rosa Hills, and a looming sense of monotony. It was a place that offered the soothing uneventfulness of conformity, but Harry longed to stand out. Tell me more about that. It was really challenging to write a lead for this book. Um, I didn't know whether I should start with the library, whether I should start with the fire, whether I should start with Los Angeles, whether I should start with libraries in general. Um, or whether I could pull off a very, very narrow, specific focus on Harry and whether readers would follow me if they 
were reading about somebody who they didn't know anything about. I had made the decision that I, I wanted to start with Harry and that I didn't want to start by saying Harry Peak was the guy who was accused of burning the library down, but instead to sidle into the story of who Harry was. It had occurred to me as I was doing my reporting that people kept mentioning his hair and that stunt stood out to me so distinctly and it seemed so, so LA that people would remember someone's hair, but also so hairy that he would be vain about his hair and make a fuss about his hair and make people notice his hair that I, I decided I wanted to, to begin there. The challenge was, and I know this sounds very minor, but it was a huge challenge was I didn't want to repeat the word hair too many times. Um, it, it seemed like I needed to refer to it, but I, I didn't want the first paragraph to have the word hair repeatedly within it. So I rewrote those first four sentences a dozen times trying to figure out how do I write this? I don't want to use a synonym for hair because that'll look really affected and silly, but I don't want to say the word hair a million times. <laughs> and to me, the rhythm of a lead is so essential. It's so important. And it, it, it's almost more important than the words themselves because you want to seduce the reader into feeling both relaxed and hooked. And I just had to get it right. And every word seemed to be really critical. So I wrote and rewrote and rewrote and would tweak and just change one word and go back and rewrite and change yet again, just one word until I had a breakthrough one day of realizing that I could write the first sentence without using with and use the word hair only once. And, you know, I look at it and I see all of the iterations of that first few sentences um, as if they're still there on the page because I worked it so many times to try to get it right. Where do you write? I have a writing studio um, that's a little separate from my house. It was our uh, carport that was converted into a writing space for me. So I work at a desk in my little studio. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I do something physical. I either weed my garden or go to the gym or go for a walk or just do anything or I cook. I mean, those are the things that feel like the most uh, restorative as a break from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband, who's a really good reader of my work and, uh, you know, in general, a really good reader and pretty honest. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, not well. <laughs> um, I, I take it really to heart very deeply, and um, I suffer it greatly, even though I've been fortunate in my life and I haven't had that much rejection, but it still um, guts me. And what is your favorite word? 
as a kid, my sister and I used to have contests all the time about what favorite words we had. And my favorite word was slice. So I'd have to say, even though I still have a million words I love, that that's probably going to remain my historical favorite for no good reason. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Susan Orling, author of The Library Book. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Dialogue on Writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.